Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening to YouTube, on YouTube, hit the like button on this video and any other platform, your five-star ratings and review are a great way to support the show. I specifically want to highlight the Spotify portion of the show right now because they have just begun allowing accepting ratings, star ratings in their reviews. So if you can please take the opportunity to give me a five-star rating and review on Spotify, I would appreciate that. Even if you're listening on another platform, if you can help promote the, the podcast on Spotify, search it up. I would really appreciate that support. Thank you. So let's dive on into today's topic, phase change investing. Now, you may not have heard about this type of investing before because I'm trying to name this uh, myself. And so it really revolves around the phase change mental model. So we're going to begin this episode talking about what a phase change is, um, help you understand some of the mental model itself, and then I'm going to apply it to investing, apply it to stocks, and kind of talk through how I see this in my personal investing process. So what is the phase change mental model? Well, this comes from chemistry. And so we need to think of phases. And when I'm talking about phases, I mean you have solids, liquids, and gas, which every type of chemical has different um, ways in which it can be in a phase of solid, liquid, or gas. But for simplicity, we're going to use water to, to describe what this is because a lot of people can relate to water. They understand water in its various forms. So water in a solid is ice. Water in a liquid is the water you're used to, whether you swim in it, drink it, um, boil it, use it for various things, um, rain, liquid. And then water in a gas is a vapor. And, and so water in gas is usually in steam, um, or, you know, makes up the water vapor in the clouds and that sort of thing. So we have water in three different phases, solid, liquid, and gas. And water can travel between these different phases. But in order to move from one phase to the next, in order to have a phase change, you have to increase the energy in the fluid. And so fluid here is interchangeable. Gas is a type of fluid, liquid is a type of fluid, solid is a type of fluid. So... 
Here, what I'm talking about is if you have solid water, so if you have ice, the way that you get ice to turn into liquid water is you have to increase the energy in the fluid, which means that you need to add energy to it. Well, energy correlates with temperature. And so as the temperature rises, the amount of energy inside it is higher. And so temperature is really a measure of the energy. And so you have all these different molecules and the kinetic energy of those molecules, they're bouncing around. And as they bounce around faster and faster and faster, that means the temperature is higher. So if you want to melt water, melt ice into liquid water, you increase the temperature, which means you're increasing the energy. Now, that makes sense, it's pretty simple, but phase changes are different. When a phase change is close to occurring, the temperature stops increasing for a period of time. So for instance, if you have ice because water is below zero degrees Celsius or below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to have ice, you're gonna have solid water. And so if you have negative 10 degrees Celsius ice, then you need to increase the temperature up to zero degrees Celsius before you can start the phase change of that ice. Likewise, if you have 15 degrees Fahrenheit ice, you need to increase it to 32 degrees Fahrenheit ice before it can phase change. And that takes energy. That takes energy that you're applying to that portion of the water. Now, What's interesting is once you hit zero degrees Celsius, once you hit 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to have the temperature stop, but you're still going to be applying energy into the system. So once the ice reaches zero C, you're gonna to have to continue to put in more energy, but no temperature change is going to happen. And that energy is being used to create the phase change. And so here, it's really that excess energy which would normally cause the temperature to rise is going to cause the phase change to occur. And this amount of energy needed is called latent heat. So you have like latent heat of melting, latent heat of vaporization. Melting is, is going from solid to liquid, vaporization from liquid to gas. And so what you would see if you plot temperature over time where you're continuously adding the same amount of energy into a system, you're going to have a chart that's gonna look very much like a stock chart sometimes looks, where you'll have these periods of increasing temperature and then it's gonna flatline for a period of time. And then you're gonna have another period of increasing temperature and then it's gonna flatline for a period of time before beginning to increase. And those flat lines are the phase change period. Those are the periods where energy is increasing, work is being done, but no obvious change is occurring on the surface. You're not able to monitor a change in temperature. It's not obvious. And so although work is being done, although energy is going in, you're not getting something apparently out. But after a period of time, it is quite different. Liquid water is quite different from solid water. Steam is quite different from liquid water, but that period of time, that work that you put in to say boiling a pot of water is important even if the temperature is not changing before it becomes boiling and you can use it to produce, um, to boil food or something and cook food. So that's the general phase change mental model to understand. Now let's apply this to stocks. 
And I've already given you that kind of base way of thinking about it, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper. But let's again hit on that baseline. If you think about this in terms of stocks and you think of a stock price chart over time, and you instead of a temperature chart over time, where you have time going along the bottom and price going on the top, you might have periods where the stock price is increasing and then periods where it flatlines and consolidates. And likewise, before it has another increase. Those consolidation periods are very important. They're very important psychologically um, to the base of investors. A lot of times what's happening is the shareholder base is changing. Um, A lot of times there's changings underlying going into business and all of that is going to play out. So let's talk about it in two frameworks. And I think there's probably more you could come up with, but these are the two that I'd like to discuss today. So we're going to look first at the underlying earnings power of the business and second at shareholder base changes. And I'm going to apply this to how you can think about this as an investor in companies and what that means for you as an investor. So in terms of underlying earnings power, when a stock gets stuck in a trading range for a period of time, whether that's months or years, on the surface, if you're just looking at a stock price chart, if you're just looking at the business fundamentals like the income statement and the balance sheet, it might not appear like a lot of change is occurring. But Often, under the surface, the company could be improving. They might be cutting costs. They might be building new products. They might be making important investments that lead to higher satisfaction customers. And then all of a sudden, after a few years, after six months, nine months, the company starts to break out to new highs because earnings go up 50%, 100%, or 200%. Because, oh, there was a new product launch, or, oh, operating leverage really starts to play out. What you can do as an investor is really take advantage of these times. There's a reason that, they, that they're that they called consolidation periods because most stocks can't just always be going up and to the right. There's going to be periods of time where they, they need to rest. They need time for either fundamentals to catch up with the stock price or they need time for business managers to adapt to changing conditions in the marketplace, new new competition. They need time before they can raise prices to deal with higher costs. There's all sorts of things that go into this. But you're going to see these periods. And, And what's interesting and helpful is a lot of times those changing periods are when two things are happening. The underlying earnings power could be improving And by earnings power, I don't mean reported earnings. I mean the strength of the business to report operating income, the strength of the business to report high free cash flow. The business will change before it shows up in the income statement. The business will change before it shows up in the balance sheet. Changes first have to occur on the production floor in a manufacturing facility before you're going to see them hit the customers, hit the products out there, and have sales start to happen. So this is part of where your fundamental analysis becomes important, your due diligence, is it's not simply judging 
the financial statements that have been put out to judge what's happened in the past, but you're also trying to think about what's going to happen in the future. What is management doing today? What are they talking about today? What are their initiatives? Are they cutting costs? Are they raising costs because they're trying to grow? Are they investing in new business? Are they investing in new technologies? What is management doing today that's going to drive the future? And sometimes those things have short-term negative impacts to the balance sheet. Two, two examples that I think are, are really interesting. One is OTC Markets. Um, a couple years ago, they reported that they were buying a new corporate headquarters. They were making a move, and this was going to increase short-term costs. And it made their short-term growth weight look worse than normal. Basically, they reported lower earnings growth than was expected, but they thought that this would be really important for their future growth, and it wasn't going to be a repeating cost. This was basically a one-time cash outlay. Yes, it would show up in depreciation, but this wasn't going to be an ongoing thing. Well, an investor looking at this, seeing that the company was investing in itself, seeing that the company was making an investment to drive future growth, should have made the analysis that, okay, we had this consolidation period where their balance sheet and their earnings growth looked slower than normal, but it was ephemeral. It wasn't real. The underlying earnings power was still growing, but because of the decisions management was making, because of their capital allocation decisions, future growth was still going to be good current growth was still good, but it was being covered up by short-term expenses. And those short-term expenses were not only important to the business, they were critical for the future growth of the business. The right thing to do in that case would have been to buy shares in the company because the company was making important and critical capital allocation decisions. Capital allocation is not always paying you a dividend. It's not always buying back stock and it's not always making an acquisition. Sometimes it's spending money to accomplish important changes that need to be done within the business. It costs money to run businesses. Even the least capital intensive businesses like OTC markets require capital to be put in on a periodic basis. I did not buy stock during that time, and I look back on it, and I think it's doubled or more um, in the last two years or something since they made those announcements, and yet I looked at it, and I chose not to invest. Well, that was probably a mistake. Let's think about another example, but this time in a company that I own. So it was Solatron Devices, which I've talked about before on the podcast. I think it's episode 114 if you want to listen to the full thesis that I laid out on the company. They've recently done something very similar. They bought a new facility. Now, it's a little different. They bought a brand new manufacturing facility, and what they're doing is they're actually downsizing. So they are currently renting. And so they're doing, it's, it's really two things. They're downsizing from a large facility to a small facility, and they're going from renting to owning. Now, that's an important change within the business, but it's going to create possibly a consolidation period in what their financial statements look like, and it might lead to a consolidation period in their stock price. And those sorts of consolidation periods can be very attractive 
for long-term investors because it allows you to build up a position in the stock. When the stock's not rapidly moving up or rapidly moving down, it can be a really good time if positive changes are still occurring to acquire shares because you don't have to worry about constantly chasing the stock price in one direction or the other. And that's not an advice to buy shares in Toltron, but it's an example of one thing that you can look out for in general is that just because stocks aren't moving doesn't mean stuff isn't happening. Because one of the things that Soltron is doing here is they are spending money, about four plus million dollars to buy a new facility. But by doing that and also putting in one to two million dollars in capital expenditures in order to buy new equipment, move their current equipment over to the new facility, um, do renovations, install new utilities, infrastructure, upgrade the facility, all the sort of thing that goes with that. They're making a large cash outlay in order to make that happen. Now, part of it they're paying for with debt, part of it with the cash on hand. But management has now signaled very clearly they expect to save a million dollars a year annually for making this temporary, you know, making this permanent move. So they're able to cut their lease costs. They no longer have to pay rent. They're able to cut their utility costs. They don't have to pay gas expenses, nitrogen expenses, or at least those expenses are going to be relatively lower. Um, Their insurance costs should be reduced. They're expecting they don't need as many employees, um, or at least some other form of their payroll costs are going down. Um, That's not 100% clear. You'd have to read the filings yourself. But basically, they expect to save a million dollars a year in expense reductions by spending $4 million to purchase a facility plus like $1 to $2 million, um, in terms of facility upgrades. So if you think about the return on investment of a $1 million um, out of – so you spend $6 million and you gain a $1 million a year in savings, that's an immediate 16% rate of return on their investment. And some of that's funded with debt. So – I mean, the return on equity there is probably over 20% simply for making that one change. But that doesn't show up right away. They've been signaling this for eight months. You know, basically in April of last year, they bought a new facility and they're still moving into it. And so you have this overlap period, you know, three, four quarters where they're making the move. So you have slightly higher expenses. You also have higher cash outlays because you're buying the new equipment, you're doing the renovations, you're paying for moving expenses. And you have some short term in a term inefficiencies because now employees have to move from one facility to another. Um, They're distracted with the move. They have to get their new offices set up. They have to take the old offices down. And all of that leads to some inefficiency in the business. Not only that, but also from the production side and the marketing side. And so when you were to, if you looked at it and you just looked at the statements, you might say, oh, well, what's going on here? Why is this, why did they have, you know, a two-year period of relatively slower growth. Well, that growth is building in the future potential for massive upside because now once this move is done, they're now solidified into a proper size production facility. They're not paying for more space than they need. 
They're able to save money. They're able to focus and consolidate their employees into a smaller space to be more efficient. So productivity might actually be much higher. So you might have higher productivity and lower expenses. And basically, it's a great setup for operating leverage, for earnings to grow substantially faster than revenue in the future, because now they've made an an important investment in the future earnings power of the business. But it requires investors to be patient. You have to deal with three quarters, four quarters, six quarters, maybe two years where the reported results might not look as good as they would have if they didn't make the change. But three years from now, two years from now, the reported results are going to be much better than they would have been without the change. And so that period of time, that phase change period is critical in order to leverage substantially higher returns. And it requires patience from your part as the investor. And so it's something I'm practicing myself. Um, Certainly, I've been very happy with the result of my investment in Soltron so far. But this is the sort of thing where I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, this might be your period of time where things slow down. But two, three years out, it looks great because of these decisions that are being made. So that's one aspect of phase change investing when we think about earnings power. But let's also think about shareholder base changes. One thing that happens in terms of consolidating periods is I believe there are time when the shareholder base turns over. And so there's many different types of investors out there. Um, And so you need to think about them And they come in like a few different types and a few different sizes. And I'll just give you some that are going to immediately come to mind and click with you. So you have like deep value investors. You have value investors. You have growth investors. You have momentum investors. And so like those are some of the types of investors. And then you have like speculators. Um, Those are some types that you can consider people to have. And people might name themselves... Um, into one of those categories or some combination of those categories. Likewise, you have like size. So you might be a retail investor, which means you're running your own personal capital. You're usually an individual. You're not working professionally in the industry. But then you have professional investors, institutional investors, and those could be either active or passive funds. Used to be only mutual funds, but now you have, you know, or hedge funds, but now you also have ETFs. And they can be either active or passive. And those tend to differ in size. So you'll have like retail is going to be this relatively smallest. And then active funds bigger than them. And then passive funds tend to even be even bigger than the active funds. And so one thing that occurs in these consolidation periods and these phase changes is the shareholder base can turn over. And that can take a period of time. So what typically happens is deep value doesn't sell to growth and growth doesn't sell to deep value. They don't tend to interact with each other. What happens is you tend to have like value as in between. So you'll have deep value investors might buy when it's, you know, super cheap and then they're going to sell to value investors. And value investors are going to buy from deep value and sell to growth. And then growth investors are going to sell to like momentum investors or speculators. 
And then if you think about it in sizes, maybe retail investors buy and then they sell to active institutions. And so the retail investors buying super small stocks that active funds can't buy because they're too small. And then active funds buy, since they bought from them, when the stock gets even bigger, they can then sell to passive funds, which are so big, like, you know, Vanguard S&P 500 fund that can't buy the super small, you know, the relatively small stuff for the mid caps. They have to buy when it's a large cap. And so as these changes in the shareholder base occur, there's opportunity for above average returns. Because one thing you can do is you can ride the wave from one set of investors to another. And so when you do this, when you think about going from one set of investors to another, your goal then is to ride a change in stock market multiple. Because if you can buy a stock that no institutional investors own, and then you wait long enough to sell to those institutional investors, you're going to benefit from multiple expansion because there's a liquidity that institutions need that is not available at certain um, areas of the market. And liquidity primarily comes because stock price has risen high enough to make it a high enough market cap, to make it a high enough profile company that they can put a substantial amount of their investment in. If you're managing $100 million, $200 million, $300 million, you're not buying a $5 million company because you need to put 5% of your portfolio in it. So if you're running $300 million, you want a 5% position, that's $15 million. You need the company to be $100, $200, $300 million if you want to invest when you run $300 million. So how does this look like in your portfolio? Well, myself, one of the things I like to think about doing is I want to buy stocks when they're nano caps. So here we're talking sub $50 million, sub $100 million, and sell them after they've 10 x 20 x and they're becoming small cap companies. And so, you know, if you think about what that means, and I say, okay, there's two ways you can do that. You can be a, buy a nano cap and wait till it becomes a micro cap, um, which let's call micro cap 100 million to 500 million. Let's call nano cap sub 100 million. So you can wait for it to go from s- nano cap to micro cap, and you're going to get a liquidity boost there. You're going to get PE multiples are going to be higher. Or you can wait till it's even higher and it's a small cap where you're talking 500 million to a billion or 500 million to 2 billion. And if that's the small cap range, you might have an even better increase in the PE multiple to get to that range. And so what you're doing is if you buy a company at $50 million and you sell it after it's 10X, now you're at $500 million. Or you sell it after it's 20X, now you're at a billion dollars. You might have bought the company for a PE ratio of five, for a PE ratio of 10. And you might be selling the company for a PE ratio of 25 or 30 because the higher liquidity in that 500 million to a billion range is brought by institutional investors and they're willing to pay higher multiples because they plan to hold it and pass it on to index funds and 
other passive funds or even larger institutional investors higher up the range. They might be buying it after it's 20x from 50 million to a billion, but they might be then waiting to sell it till it's reached 20 billion. And so they get to benefit from the next 10x, 20x where they're maybe trying to sell it for even higher multiples or um, starting to leverage the fact that at those sizes, the companies can benefit from more debt financing, um, more liquidity from starting to show up in indexes. And when index funds buy, you have forced buying. And so there's all sorts of ways to play this game. But as a retail investor or a small institutional investor, I think the best way to do this is to focus on the smallest companies you can while still finding qualities of sufficient companies of sufficient quality. So for me, that's buying the $5 million company, that's buying the $50 million company, that's buying the $100 million company and trying to get them to be 300 million, 500 million, a billion. And I don't really want to hold behind a billion because at that point, I likely would have already benefited from my multiple expansion and there's probably better deals then to be had in the smaller areas. So by the time your company's 20x and you're selling it for a 25 PE multiple, you might have a new idea with a 5 PE multiple. And so you can start that process over again. So this is what I'm calling phase change investing, where you're really taking, you're benefiting from two different processes. One, you're benefiting from operational leverage and earnings power that's not being seen in the marketplace because you're buying during these periods where the business is consolidating, where it's spent a year, two years, three years improving the business, but it's not yet reported the better earnings. So by doing your due diligence, by actually doing your research, you can see that, oh, this company's reporting earnings of $500,000 but next year they're going to report earnings of $2 million. And now by buying in advance and accurately predicting that you can benefit from a four X, a 400, you know, a 300% increase in earnings. And that's when everyone else is going to buy. And then you get that operating leverage benefit. Likewise, you get to benefit from buying from one shareholder base and selling to another shareholder base. So if you can buy as a deep value investor, skip the value investors and sell to the growth investors, that gives you an even bigger boost. Most people only touch their neighbors in terms of what they're buying and selling. If they're deep value, they sell to value. If they're value, they sell to growth. But what I like to do is I want to be the I want to buy as a deep value investor and sell as a growth investor. And by skipping the middle range, by skipping the value investors and allowing them to buy while I hold, I'm able to supercharge my returns and supercharge the multiple expansion that I can expect if my analysis is accurate. And so the other side of that is the sizes. I'm trying to buy those nano caps and sell as small caps. I use the micro cap period as a holding period and try and really benefit from that long changeover um, from these super undiscovered, super overlooked companies and sell them when they're quite visible and um, clearly high quality companies. So again, this process can take years, but if you think about what it means to buy at a multiple of 10 times earnings and sell at a multiple of 20 times earnings, that's a double. 
And so if it takes 10 years to do that, that's going to add 7% per year to your returns. But if you bought at a 10 times PE multiple, then you have a 10 times 10% earnings yield. And so your return is going to be the 10% earnings yield plus the 7% multiple expansion that you get. So you're going to have 17% um, annual returns because you bought at a 10 PE multiple and sold it at a 20 PE multiple, assuming you're able to capture some of that cash flow in the interim. And again, that 7% comes because if you do, every time you, if you double in 10 years, you get a 7% annual return based on the rule of 72. Likewise, if you do it faster than that, then you're going to even get a bigger boost from multiple expansion. Alternatively, if you buy even cheaper and sell even more expensive, like you buy at a five times multiple and you sell at a 25 times multiple, that's going to give you a 5x return and really supercharge your returns. And, and so again, this process can take years. I don't plan for this to take anything less than 10 years when I'm buying these stocks. Um, so it requires some patience. But I think by allowing yourself to invest during these phase changes, you can really produce alpha in your returns because most investors are unwilling to buy during phase changes. They either want the comfort of seeing the earnings um, already happen, so they don't get the benefit of... They're not doing the work to discover the undiscovered things, um, and they don't get the benefit of having done that work. Or you're taking the risk of buying relatively small companies, and so then you get the benefit of earning that liquidity premium. So that's my basic overview of phase change investing. This is a mental model that um, I don't believe anyone else has talked about in the investing community. Um, obviously, if, if you know a lot about chemistry, phase changes, you're already aware of that. But in terms of applying it into investing, I think this will be the, the first time something like this is out there. So you know, let me know your thoughts. Um, hit me up on Twitter, follow me on Twitter at Trey Hittiger. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY investing podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.